Okay. Welcome to the Religion Unplugged podcast. I'm Megan Clark, the managing editor of Religion Unplugged, and here with me today is Dr. Josh Packard, who's the executive director of Springtide Research Institute, which, um, as far as I know, you can correct me, uh, focuses on young people and their religious lives. So we're going to talk about their latest report about Gen Z's relationship to religion and finding meaning and um, even distrust in institutions. Springtide really does sit at that intersection of young people's religious and daily lives. So we saw, you know, over the last, by looking at a lot of research and just our own experiences, I think, you know, I've been a college professor for a while before coming over to Springtide and many of us have kids of our own and just sort of summing up all the landscape and realizing that young people were increasingly, you know, still very interested in religious questions, but not having those conversations inside of particular institutions. And the more we dug into this and realized that this wasn't a particular issue facing, you know, just Protestant churches or, or just Muslim communities that we saw this as something that was sort of going on in society in general. And that's where Springtide comes in. You know, we, instead of coming at this from a particular denomination or faith perspective, we just say, you know, the question, the central driving question for us is, where are young people asking um, and, and having conversations about what's most important to them in life? And then we go to those places and find out who's with them. How do they have those conversations? Who are their guides? You know, how can we resource and, and outfit them better? Because we know there's a lot of adults who really care about young people and want to, you know, be in their life in a meaningful way, but sometimes just don't know how to do it anymore. Yeah, a few points that stood out to me as I read your latest report um, that I wanted to talk about today, there's kind of three points that I thought of, and I hope you have more, but one was just the record loneliness among young people today. And what really stood out to me was that even those who participate in religious groups and activities also have the same rates, basically, of loneliness. And then another yeah. is, is like record rates of the you know, so-called nuns or religiously unaffiliated but why that label can be deceiving. And then another one is record rates of distrust in institutions, which we've kind of all seen. Um, so it's not that surprising, but even young people who affiliate with a religious tradition are saying they have little or no trust in religious institutions. <laughs> the very ones that they affiliate with. <laughs> yeah, so that was also surprising to me. So um, should, yeah. should we start with the loneliness uh, part? Yeah, let's let's do that. I mean, I think this is for this is really one of the things that kicked off our interest in this sort of like thinking about religion broadly in the lives of young people. Um, and and I'm I'm a sociologist by training. That's the perspective that Springtide takes. Is that these are not you know things are probably not isolated incidents to particular institutions or sectors of the world, but there are these sort of trends and themes that run throughout and loneliness and isolation is one of them. It's incredibly disheartening. Uh, this is a, uh, people have been tracking loneliness and isolation for years. And um, there's two things that matter here is like, what is the change over time? And then also what are the absolute levels? And for the first time ever using this sort of the standardized scale that was developed out of UCLA about 40 years ago, young people are the loneliest generation that we have right now. It's usually the oldest generation um, at any given time for reasons you can probably understand. But I realized we didn't really define who are young people. Yeah, sorry, spring, it's a really good question. Yeah. So at springtime, we focus on 13 to 25 year olds. Okay. Um, so most of the research that you see in, this, in these places are gonna be 18 and up, but we think it's, you know, we spend the extra time and effort and money 
to go all the way down to 13 because there's so much of like really formative life experience happening at those younger ages that we wanted to capture those. Um, mm-hmm. So that the signal was the first one to document this loneliness and isolation among young people. And not only is it the, the first time that the youngest generation has been the most lonely, it's also their levels, their, their sort of um, absolute levels of loneliness and isolation are the highest that's ever been recorded for any group. And uh, we found a lot of the same kinds of things when we extended down to 13 years old in our study of belonging, um, which you can see behind me. On the one hand, you know, we, we talked to religious leaders who were like, okay, but what does this have to do with religion? And I get that there's not like an explicit, uh, I, I understand their question, you know, and at the same time, um, the, the question back to, from, from me to them is like, well, what doesn't it have to do with religion? Like, how can you, how can you raise anybody in a way that engages in conversation, you know, it passes on the faith, transmits values, et cetera, if they're, if they're not connected into larger communities. That's community is where these things have always happened. Um, yeah. And so, as you mentioned, you know, pretty critically, I, I think that these attendance variables that we used to measure, like how often are you, you know, are you showing up on Sunday mornings or Friday nights or whatever, that used to be a good proxy for whether or not you were connected to a community and pretty, pretty clearly what we were able to show is that attendance no longer indicates belonging anymore for young people. That just because they show up to a church or even a football team or an after-school activity of some sort, that does not mean they find like a sense of community there or a sense of belonging. One statistic that really stood out to me was that you found 69% of young people say they had three or fewer meaningful interactions in a regular day. <laughs> yeah. That's just tragic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. I, I mean, I'm laughing here because it's almost unbelievable. It, um, it is, yeah. And you, you know, you said you're connected to a college campus. The only reason we knew to ask this question is that years ago at the university where I worked, we had the uh, a sort of group of campus ministers came to me in the research lab that I was running, and they said, "Hey, we would love to put out a survey to the campus to find out sort of like, you know, what." students feel about religion or how open they are to conversations, et cetera. So we put together a survey. And one of the questions that one of them wanted to know was like, this was this question, how many meaningful interactions do you have? And we would define it in the survey of like more than just about the weather or whatever. So that way they have some examples of what we mean. I was like, okay, fair enough. We can ask this question. No problem. And it's like the first category will be like one to 10. Uh, and the next category will be like 11 to 15 maybe. And then we'll go 16 to 20. Um, and my students in the research lab stopped me and they're like, no, 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 no the first category has to be like zero to one. And I was like, y'all, that's crazy. Like this is a residential campus. You know, we have dorms, there's dining halls. Like there's no way we have college students who are at any, at any you know, significant level having like two or one interaction with each other that matters on a daily basis. And they were, and they were like, no, we what have to ask. Causes of that, like, I'm just- Yeah, like, we have to start here. So did a lot of, uh, you know, interviews of people. It wasn't just a survey, so like what were their reasons for having so few meaningful interactions? Well, it's hard. I mean, the reasons are multifaceted um, and we're trying to disentangle some of those at Springtide now through the interviews. So we don't, like, like you mentioned, we don't just do surveys. We also do interviews, Um, but they give us a variety of reasons that, you know, part of it is, you know, I think there's a real decline in social skills in terms of just understanding how and what makes a meaningful interaction. You know, there's, um, We've got, we've got some changing social conditions too that have made, you know, that have given, frankly, parents and caregivers, uh, guardians less free time to help mentor and model these kinds of interactions with people. The communities have been um, dramatically altered 
sometimes just because of the conditions of work and economic reality over the last 20 years. So I think there's a whole lot of things playing into this, but also the distrust in social institutions that you alluded to earlier, like they don't show up to these places expecting to have meaningful interactions uh, while they're there. So what can religious groups do and leaders do better than to help loneliness? Um, I guess you were saying, you know, some religious leaders feel like that's not their problem to address necessarily. That may be too harsh because I, I think I know a lot of religious leaders who, who see this problem and they want to help. Yeah. Uh, but so what should they do better? I think that's like the second part of your report focuses on just that. Um, but right. succinctly, what are some practical things that they should be doing? Well, it's really critical that we do address this because um, belonging is uh, the first step towards believing in anything, um, whether it's a religious order or whether it's democracy or you know a value that you're passing along as a family, whatever it is. If you don't feel like you belong to that group, then you're never going to uh, adopt those beliefs. So it's absolutely fundamentally important that we that we start addressing this. And um, I think the, the 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 process here is pretty clear. The research has driven it. Um, it shows us that we need to create this, we, we outlined it in the second half of the report, like you said, this noticed, named, known framework of, of identifying and then sort of by calling out people and then gradually integrating them until they're part of the community. Um, but critically, it revolves around relationships, not programs. I mean, the, you know, I, that's the one thing I would say here is that, you know, over the last, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 years, religious leaders have gotten really good at building programs and they were really effective for a very long time. And it's, but it, the social conditions now call us, I think pretty clearly to shift our focus, you know, away from those, if you build it, they will come kinds of things and more towards these intimate one-on-one -on -one small group relationships. And like mentorships. Yeah. And, and that looks, that, that takes a different skill set. It takes a different mindset more than anything else. Who are these religiously unaffiliated people, uh, young people? I mean, we also call them nuns a lot, like N-O-N-E-S um, in the media, especially. Um, but in your report, you say religiously unaffiliated. So uh, like some things you found were that nearly 40% of young people ages 18 to 25 are religiously unaffiliated. Um, and that's more than twice the number of unaffiliated in ages 50 and up. Right. So, but then the weird thing is that when you really look at the unaffiliated, uh, you know, what do they mean by that? Uh, some say 60% say that they're spiritual and nearly a third are attending religious services. And then a ne nearly a third say they're trying to live out their religious beliefs. So that's very confusing. Can you unpack <laughs> that to people who, uh, you know, the nuns are like the group that everyone is trying to figure out, but yeah. you figured out, <laughs> I guess. Uh, yeah, everybody can stop because we've got all the answers. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I think we, we, ha we have done young people such a dramatic disservice when it comes to this conversation about nuns. Um, it has, uh, I understand why it exists. You know, the, the data from Pew and Gallup, the General Social Survey and others, like it's, it's been pretty clear and it's alarming if you're a religious leader. But what it's done is to sort of whitewash the diversity that exists underneath that label. And I don't, I don't know why we've come to terms with the notion that like, if you ask a 15 year old what they wanna be when they grow up, uh, and then you ask her again six months later, and then again six months later, you're not ever expecting to get the same answer. But for some reason, we have, we have decided that like religious identification, religious affiliation, like those are static attitudes and that you either are something or you are not something. And 
we don't we don't do that with young people in any other part of their lives. We don't expect them to keep, you know, we don't expect 17 year olds to keep the same boyfriends and girlfriends, but we expect them to somehow have the same thoughts and beliefs of, about religion, which is bananas. So really, if you ask like, what have we learned about this group? Well, what we've learned is that the reality is way more complicated um, and frankly interesting than these broad stroke labels of affiliated and unaffiliated. And in fact, thinking about just these categories of affiliated and unaffiliated is not particularly helpful. Um, that in, in the way I keep saying it to, to religious leaders that are listening is that, look, there's, I think this is really an expansion of the playing field. You know, what our research shows here is that there's a whole lot of young people that you might not think that are open to the conversation of religion or to talking with you about these things, but not only are they open to them, they're, they're really, really intensely wanting to have experts and guides in these conversations. I think we just need to take a step back and think about like, okay, what's really going on here? And, and do, does, does that number of nuns, does that, does that number, that 39, does that really tell us everything we need to know? Yeah, it, it almost seems to me like um, if there's this greater, you know, so-called open-mindedness among young people, one finding you guys wrote about in, in op-ed that we're publishing at Religion Unplugged was about young people being open to having conversations with people who have right. different political beliefs and different religious beliefs. And, you know, it seems like they have a greater openness than previous generations did even. Um, but, you know, maybe that also means they're more uncertain at this present time and, and rejecting labels because they're talking to people that are so different and still exploring things um, and kind of hesitant to put a label on their own beliefs yet. Well, I do think so. Look, no generation has ever wanted a label on, on them in, in any way. This is the central theme of all rock music ever made ever, right? <laughs> like This is every song that's ever been in the top 20 of all time. So I don't think that's new or, or even all that revolutionary. I think what is critical to understand here is that the, the places where young people are searching, the people that they're looking for, and the labels that they are willing to adopt are decidedly outside of traditional institutions. That's what's different. So even though there are these places that exist in sometimes literal physical form on the corners that are housed with people who are experts that could help them navigate religious questions, not only does it not occur to young people to go to those places to find answers, but they're actively sort of disengaging and walking away from and avoiding those places. So you can keep all the knowledge and expertise that you want over in that physical building. Um, but if what you really care about is helping young people to answer and navigate those questions, you, you're going to have to leave that space. They're not coming to you. Yeah. And how does politics affect that? Um, like I'm thinking of the social justice movements right now, um, whether it's Black Lives Matter or LGBTQ rights, um, are, are people feeling that uh, disconnect from religious institutions from some of those movements? Um, is that part of this uh, not wanting to trust, not trusting religious institutions? And I'm also wondering if there's been any kind of measurable impact of Trumpism on religious mm -hmm. identity. Does that come up in the interviews, you know, of people not sure if they want to call themselves Christian and still exploring other beliefs? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't help. <laughs> I mean, what we yeah. hear, you know, examination of particular candidates and parties are not things that, that we really take on at Springtide. I mean, I think that that can be distracting from this overall conversation, which is like, what do young people want when they engage in politics and political conversations in a faith-based context or otherwise? And the data there are super clear. 
What they want is open-minded conversation. They want to be taken seriously. And I think you can draw a pretty clear line. Um, you know, it doesn't take a, it doesn't take much to extrapolate from there to the political climate currently, which is not one that particularly values dialogue. It, it is not one that is particularly open to exploration of differences in many cases. Uh, and so in, in many ways, what's passing as political religious engagement is not measuring up in, in the lives and des the desires of young people. And they feel left out and shut out and shut down from these conversations. In fact, when we ask them, you know, sort of like how to, in the interviews we ask them, like describe adults to us when they're talking about politics. <laughs> and then we ask the same thing in the surveys and they, they, they use words like, you know, dismissive and aggressive as, as opposed to things like warm and inviting. It's precisely the opposite tone that you'd want if you were really trying to engage somebody, you know, and make them like, thoughtful, engaged citizens that are, you know, really struggling with how their values show up in the ballot, uh, in the, in the, in the uh, polling booth. It's, it's not, there's not a whole lot of uh, long-term thinking going on here. What about the discrepancies between young people's stated beliefs and some of their behaviors? Um, how did they themselves explain that about affiliating with a tradition and not trusting the tradition? <laughs> And it's stunning, right? I mean, 52% of people who are affiliated say that they don't trust religious institutions. And um, this is where I think that it's important to listen to the data, but then we also, you know, because the, that is a very accurate reflection of how young people feel and, and perceive themselves in the world around them. But it's also, I think, critical here that we understand that we're, we're talking to teenagers and young people and folks that are not, it, it would be... Um, it would be unfair to treat them as sort of like experts in the, in the greater social world. I think this is where the story of trust comes in. And so, you know, behind the scenes, like when we're analyzing the data and looking for the story and the commonalities there, the theme that we see and keep coming back to that runs throughout both the qualitative interviews and the quantitative data, as well as their um, actual markers of behavior, uh, is, this, is this trend and move away from institutions. So I think that's a lot of what you see people struggling with in those discrepancies is that they, they just really don't want to be seen as falling under the banner of a particular institution and agreeing and therefore like agreeing or supporting everything that comes along with that identification. Um, and so you've got this stuff that's sort of, you know, that they, they're searching for and struggling with and trying to find a label, an identity, a way of communicating that makes it clear that like, for example, yes, I maybe like I believe in say Jesus Christ as a Messiah figure. But like, I'm not on board with maybe the sort of ways that those teachings have been interpreted by some of the various branches of Christianity. And so you see them saying like, oh, yeah, I'll identify as Christian, but I'm not so sure that I'm like trusting of those institutions to like, sort of figure out that message in a modern world. Um, and we see this. I, I, that's just a, from a Christian standpoint. We heard similar stories from uh, in fact, we tell some of these in our podcast, The Voices of Young People, um, coming from different faith backgrounds and traditions about the, the difficulty of sort of, you know, putting that what seems to them like a square peg in a round hole when it comes to their faith and how they want to live it out with their religious traditions with a modern world. Yeah. So how are they living out their faith for those people who who say that's important to them? I think it was a yeah. third or something of unaffiliated young people. How are they living <laughs> yeah. faith without the institutions? Yeah, like a third of unaffiliated, they're unaffiliated. And yet they said that their faith impacts their daily life. Um, this is, that was the whole central, um, you know, we wanted to bring some of this to life. And so with every study that we do, we release a, a season of our podcast, The Voices of Young People. And, and the this, this season that goes, season three, that goes along with the State of Religion and Young People 2020, 
is just 10 interviews with young people, but we removed the interviewer. So they're just telling you in firsthand accounts how their faith impacts their life, how it intersects with their decision-making. And it is as multifaceted uh, as you might imagine. And I'll get to like why I think this is so critical to listen to these stories because you see that like you've got people who identify as Christian who think it's really important to meditate before playing a baseball game. Um, you know, they're, they're, finding, they're finding religious experiences in nature um, and all this sort of like amalgam of stuff that is, I think, again, like really reflective of a young person's life who might switch college majors four times, <laughs> right? Yeah. And what this, the reason why that's so important, that there isn't a dominant story here, but rather that there are multi, multiple stories is because it, it communicates, I think, a really important lesson to religious leaders, which is that your job for 13 to 25 year olds is not to sh is not to give them this like faith fully formed and convince them to take it, but rather it is to engage in young people in their conversation about faith and be a part of that conversation for as long as you possibly can, as long as they'll have you, as long as they'll let you into that conversation, because they're they're just not going. I mean you can keep trying to give them a faith fully formed, but those days have passed. Like that is not going to happen. So once we can let go of that and realize that we are conversation partners for the long haul while they're figuring all these things out, I think we're going to start to see a lot more impact and a lot more really important relationships because like you said, they're, they are out there trying to figure out how to live out some kind of values, some sort of faith tradition, even if they don't want to claim an affiliation. And I didn't see, was your research conducted in the beginning of 2020 um, or like where in the pandemic, you know, because I'm wondering. The whole pandemic. <laughs> this all going uh, because yeah. the, it seems like we'll be virtual for quite a bit longer. And, you know, just in our circles and we're seeing that a lot of people have dropped off a little bit from church attendance yeah. um, because the virtual experience is just not as great. So I'm wondering how is that affecting, you know, some of the interviews and research that you did that may have been more toward the beginning or did you see a difference as you were going throughout 2020? Yeah, thankfully we were, we collected, I mean, this is 10,000 uh, surveys, 150 interviews. So the data collection here, you know, expands through the entire pre and post, I mean, not post, I wish it were post, pre and during <laughs> pandemic stuff, right? We're not yeah. post yet. Hopefully we're getting there. Um, yeah. The pandemic seems to have not changed things fundamentally as much as it has accelerated trends that were already in place. Okay. Uh, in fact, I, I put this on Twitter yesterday, a, a religious leader had asked uh, in a different social media platform, like, you know, what if things don't go back to normal? And I was like, that is an insane question to ask. Like from our standpoint, all the data we're seeing, I'm like, what if things do go back to normal? Like normal was, was like so not great for young people when it came to religion. Like, I think you should be terrified if things went back to normal. Yeah. <laughs> and I think like that is, you know, what we see, what we see in COVID here is this accelerant of these kinds of trends where it's like this fall, if you don't have relations with relationships with young people, you have virtually no impact in their life. And and we've seen the sort of like the places that have good relationships have been thriving through the pandemic. And the ones that are simply trying to move their programs online, like you said, they're sort of falling apart. They've even made it this far. Where do you see these trends going forward? Are they, these trends are continuing to accelerate or? Well, I, so this spring we have a, a new study coming out called Work Life. And it's about helping Gen Z to flourish and find balance because we see a lot of this um, sort of meaning making work happening 
for, for young people increasingly in, in the workplace. Uh, again, this is part of some of those economic realities that I alluded to, which is, you know, people just have are required to work more to make ends meet. And so, you know, they just have less time to pursue religion in other places or meaning in other places. But I think there's a, there's a really, you know, it's not as simple as saying like, uh, you know, young people are taking jobs that are, you know, provide an intrinsic sense of meaning to them. I mean, that's a very privileged thing to get to do. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so I think it's incumbent upon us as adults to, you know, who are basically in, in many cases in the religious world, like you're basically, you're, you're a professional meaning maker. That's what you do. You help people make sense out of their lives. And that includes their lives at work. And we've been outside of those conversations for too long, whether that's finding work that's meaningful or making meaning at work um, that might not otherwise have it. But lots of people are doing jobs that they um, don't necessarily want to do, but because it supports something that is really important to them, taking care of family members, finally getting to a place of financial security, um, you know, any, any, you know, doing it for healthcare benefits, et cetera. Um, very noble things and helping young people to do that kind of meaning making work at, and, and seeing that as connected to their larger, larger spiritual and religious selves, I think is really critical. That's where I think a lot of this future is headed. Thank you so much for joining us um, and for sharing your report with us. And soon, you know, anyone listening, we're going to publish a short op-ed from Josh and from his colleague, Kevin Singer, and we'll have that up on Religion Unplugged. And thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Megan. I really appreciate it. I appreciate all the work you do at Religion Unplugged. Yeah, look forward to continuing to collaborate. This episode of the Religion Unplugged podcast was hosted by me, Religion Unplugged Managing Editor, Megan Clark. Edited and produced by Peter Freeby. The Religion Unplugged podcast is a production of religionunplugged.com and is part of The Media Project, a nonprofit dedicated to equipping journalists to cover religion. To read our award-winning global religion news coverage, or to find out more about Religion Unplugged or The Media Project, visit religionunplugged.com or follow us on Twitter at religionmag.